0: Ezra chapter number 8 is where we're starting today. And uh, as you're turning there, you'll remember last week we looked at the fact that God has always placed the right people at the right places at the right times. We used a young lady by the name of Esther to prove that. You'll remember her uncle Mordecai told her, who knows whether thou hast been sent to the kingdom for such a time as this. We looked at Elijah, who argued with God that he was the only one left, and God said, no, 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 no. I still have 7,000 hidden in a cave that have not bowed their knees to Baal. And they are his faithful few that he has reserved for his service. And he encourages Elijah in that. And the truth is, down through history, God has always done this. And it's still true to this day. In every single Bible-believing and Bible-preaching church across our land and across our world, God has selected and planted exactly who He wants, where He wants, at such a time as this. Now, we looked last week at what we called this great team in Ezra chapter number 8 that Ezra puts together to take into Jerusalem. The temple has now mostly been rebuilt, and it is about time to begin serving in the temple. And that's where Ezra comes into play. They need a pastor. They need the Levites. They need the Nethanims. They need the brave hearted. They need the, this group to step up and be what God wants them to be at this time. And so we looked last week in verses 1 through 14. I will not even dare try to reread all of those names. Okay, it'll get me in trouble. I'll, I'll mispronounce it, I'm sure. So I'm not going to try to reread the names, but we called those people in verses one through 14, the brave hearted. They were willing, they were selfless, they were humble, they were passionate. Ultimately together, those four characteristics describe someone who is truly courageous. In Christianity, courage looks different than it does out in the world. Courage is not merely facing down our fears and overcoming them. Courage comes with character. There is a certain character in which you face your fears and overcome them. If facing your fears and overcoming them was all there was to courage, courage would be a pretty shallow thing. But if you can face those fears with a willing heart, with a selfless heart, with a humble heart, passionate about the things of God, if you can face those fears with that kind of character, that's a courage that's acceptable in the eyes of God That's the kind of courage God wants each of us to have. And so we spent some time looking at the brave-hearted. And then we moved on to the wise-hearted. And I'm actually going to dwell a little bit longer on this than I did last week because the Lord laid a few more thoughts on my heart about this group. Uh, And I want to share it with you this morning as I was studying. you know, One of the things that I love about God's Word is that there will be times where I feel like I have studied something thoroughly. And even in the very writing down of our review, I come across something different and something additional that I think would be helpful. And not that last week was inaccurate and this week will be more accurate, but I just believe that God's Word is so alive and so vibrant and so uh, jam-packed full that we can take the same passage of Scripture and we can utilize it in a number of different ways and not be outside of the boundaries of what God intended. And so I want to do that for a moment. Uh, But we did look at the wise-hearted last week, and this week we'll move on to the servant-hearted. These three groups made up the dream team that Ezra took into Jerusalem. Those same three groups make up the dream team of Trinity Baptist Church. There are the brave-hearted, there are the wise-hearted, and there are the servant-hearted. Each and every one is critically important. There's not one group that's less important than the other. One of the things that you'll find is oftentimes not everybody will fit into all three groups. Now that is occasionally, I I believe ultimately that's what God desires. God desires for us to be able to fit into any three of those groups or all three at the same time. I believe God wants us to be brave-hearted, He wants us to be wise-hearted, and He wants us to be servant-hearted all at the same time, and then He can use us in whatever capacity He chooses when we fit into all three categories, but that doesn't always happen. Uh, I'll tell you, there are times that a a person will get saved and they will be a young Christian and they've got a brave heart, but they've not had time to develop a wise heart. Uh, The way that I've heard it said before is that there's a great amount of zeal, but not a lot of knowledge. And you need that. You need people like that, that are zealous. They will just jump on board. I mean, you, you so much as mention an idea, and next the very next week, they've already got it done. You've got to have people like that. Uh, but ultimately, over time, the hope is, is that the brave-hearted become the wise-hearted, and they become the servant-hearted. And we take on all three of those characteristics. But I want to spend some time on the wise-hearted this morning. Look at verse number 15. Verse number 15 of chapter number 8. And I gathered them together to the river that runneth to Ahava. Now, you'll remember he's got this large group of people that he has assembled. Ezra has assembled. And they have begun their journey toward Jerusalem. They pause on this side of the river of Ahava. And this is what he does. It says, in their abode we in tents three days. And I viewed the people... And the priests, and found there none of the sons of Levi. Now, there's a lot that could be said here about the sons of Levi negatively. Why are the servants of God, the ones who are going to perform the work of the Lord in the house of the Lord, why aren't they there? Why is it that it takes Ezra three days of looking through the people to find out that the servants of God stayed home? There's a lot that could be said about that. You know, I'm calling this group the wise-hearted, but the fact of the matter is they were not a part of the brave-hearted. They, you know, you can have all the wisdom in the world. But if you don't apply your heart and do what you know is right, that's really not wisdom. And so I want to focus this morning... Not so much on the wisdom of the Levites that eventually come along after they have to go back and they have to speak into their ears the words that Ezra tells them to speak and finally they coerce them into coming along. It should never have taken that much to convince them to come along. There's something very wrong going on in the hearts of these Levites for them to not be in this congregation. It's not like they didn't know that God was on the move and they decided to stay back, to stay home. Okay, And so there's a lot I could say about that. But what I want to focus on is Ezra's wisdom here. The wise-hearted, I want to specifically point out Ezra here and some of the things that he does. The first thing he does is he finds God's plan. It is critical for each of us in our own right and in our own spheres of influence to find God's plan. In verse number 15... It says, "And I gathered them together to the river that runneth to Ahava, and there abode we in tents three days. And I viewed the people and the priests, and found there none of the sons of Levi." You know, when I read when I read verse fifteen, there's a couple of things that I notice. First of all, the people within God's plan are important. The people within God's plan are important. In verse 15, it starts and it says, I gathered them. These are specifically hand-selected individuals that Ezra has chosen to go into Jerusalem. He had to find God's plan, God's will on this group of people that he was going to bring with him. Why? Because people are important. One of the reasons that I'll typically take a week or two or longer before I'll select A person or a group of people for a particular job is because I think that's essential and it's a big weighty thing to make sure that we have the right people in the right positions. People are important. Number two, though, and, and that one's hard, that one's an easy sell. I don't think I gotta convince any of you that God wants to put the right people in the right positions. But the second one's a little more difficult to comprehend, and as we look back on our lives, this may be an aha moment. Places are important within God's will, within God's plan. Not only are people important, but places are important. I want you to notice it says there in verse number 15, and I gathered them together to the river that runneth to Ahava. They did not have to stop here. They did not have to, to, to stop where they stopped. Had they crossed the river, we're talking about a massive group of people, had they crossed the river and then found out that there weren't any Levites, their journey back was going to be a lot more complicated. So not only did Ezra amass the group of people that God wanted, but he stopped at exactly the location God wanted him to stop. Places are important. Important. Do you realize that you can miss God's will for your life if you're in the wrong place? I want you to think about that for a moment. It is possible to miss God's plan by being in the wrong place. All of a sudden now, where I'm at matters. It's not just some take it or leave it. It's just the convenient thing to do. It's why it's so important for us to pray about every single decision that we make because places are important. Number three, timing is important. Timing is important. In verse 15, it says that they abode there in tents for three days. It took three days for Ezra to go around and look at all the people and find out that there were none of the sons of Levi with them. The whole purpose for them to go back to Jerusalem was to enter the house of God and begin performing the work of the Lord. And he starts looking through the people and there's not even a son of Levi with them to be able to perform that work. They're not there. The timing was so critically important. I've often said... Knowing God's will and trying to do it out of God's timing is not doing God's will. Knowing God's will and trying to do that out of God's timing is not performing God's will. I've done this before. I've done this actually several times in ministry. God would reveal something to me in my heart. And I just assumed that because God had shown me something that he wanted me to do that it meant I needed to do it right now. And so I would jump in with both feet and I'd get started and it seemed like every door would shut in my face and it took me a long time to figure out that God's timing is everything. God's timing is everything. People are important, places are important, timing is important, preaching is important. Preaching is important. Look at verse number uh, 16 with me here. Then sent I for Eleazar and Ariel and Shemaiah, and El Nathan, and for Jerub and El Nathan, and for Nathan and for Zechariah, and for Meshalom, chief men also for Joeb and for El Nathan, men of understanding, and I sent them with commandment unto Ido, the chief of the place Casifia, and I told them what they should say unto Ido. I have missed services that I wished I wouldn't have missed. Does that make sense? When I say preaching is important, what I mean by that is there have been times in my past when I something came up or you name it, whatever the case may have been, I wasn't quite feeling well, maybe I had a headache. Something came up and I excused myself from going to church and I would get word later in the afternoon about the kind of service that it was. And I would think, man, I can't believe I missed that. Why wasn't I there? I knew I should have gone. I missed what God had for me. I know it. I can take you to very distinct, specific times where that has taken place. There are times, if we're not careful, that we can miss God's will by not being within the sound of His voice. I say preaching is important, but I only use that word because the next point I'm going to make is that words are important. Words are important within God's will, but preaching is important. Being in a position where I can hear God trying to speak to me. Look at verse number 18. It says, and by the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding of the sons of Malai, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, and Sherebiah with his sons and his brethren, 18. And so it was God that moves and works. And what we find ultimately is that not only is preaching important, but the words that are spoken are important. I've had times in my life before where words were spoken to me that made me very angry somebody would come to me and they would say something to me trying to either correct me or trying to reprove me, and it would be very bothersome to me. But I heard a man say one time, and I think it's good wisdom, nothing will ever cross your ears that God does not allow you to hear. Right, wrong, or indifferent, spoken in the right attitude or wrong, it got to your ears because God allowed it to get to your ears. And I'd have to take a step back and consider those things. A wise-hearted individual is able to find God's plan. And I'm not just talking about the big picture items. I'm talking about the right people, being in the right places, being there in the right times, making sure that I'm under the right preaching, and that I'm using the right words and hearing the right words to be right where God wants me to be. That is a wise-hearted person that finds God's will. Number two... Not only does a wise-hearted person find God's plan, but a wise-hearted person then cares for God's people. A wise-hearted person will care for God's people. I want you to notice again in verse number 15, it says halfway through the verse, and I viewed the people. He wasn't viewing their supplies. He wasn't viewing their location. He was not viewing how everybody was faring in terms of food and sustenance. He was looking very specifically at the people. He cared about the people. And as I told you a few weeks ago, I, that speaks to my heart because people are the goal. A wise-hearted person finds God's plan. A wise-hearted person cares for God's people. Number three, a wise-hearted person follows God's purpose. That purpose ultimately has everything to do with the truth of God's word. Ezra notices that there are people missing. He goes to find them because he knows that's what God wants. He then gives them a commandment of what to say because he knows what God wants him to say. He finds the right person in verse number 18, a man of understanding, not a man of charisma, but a man of understanding. Every single decision that Ezra is making here tells me that he's got one purpose in mind, and that is to put a premium on the truth of God's word to the children of Israel. He knows that for generations, truth has gone by the wayside. Everything else was important to Israel except for God's truth. And Ezra steps in and he says, no, that is not going to happen here. I don't care whether it's something you agree with or not. This is exactly what we must do. Why? Because he understood God's purpose. And it had everything to do with truth. And then fourthly, a wise-hearted person will focus on God's praise. A wise-hearted person will focus on God's praise, beginning of verse 18, And by the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding. A wise-hearted person will focus on God's praise. It's not about their wisdom. One of the the dangerous notions or places that we can get ourselves into is getting into the habit of saying, I told you, or I said. I know of people that they'll, they'll say a bunch of things so that hopefully some of the stuff they said will come true. And then at the end of it, they can say, I said that eight months ago. I said that four years ago. It's irrelevant what I said. What is completely relevant is what is God doing? That's the relevant thing. The focus should be on God's praise in a wise-hearted servant. Now let's look on verse number 20. We're going to just read one verse here. And I want to emphasize one last final group, what we're calling the servant-hearted. Look at verse 20. The Bible says also of the Nethanyms whom David and the princes had appointed for the service of the Levites, 220 Nethanyms, all of them were expressed by name. I had to do some research. I had to look up who in the world are Nethanyms. There's no places in your Bible that they are referred to more than the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Only one other place in your entire Bible is the word Nethanym used. And it's used in, I believe it's 1 Chronicles, and it doesn't tell us who they are. It just says the Nethinims went with the Levites. That's all it says. And so Ezra and Nehemiah, the Nethinims are used almost exclusively in these two books. So who are they? The Nethinims are the slaves of the Levites. That's who they are. That's the best way I can put it to you. And as I considered the fact that they make up a part of this dream team. And the fact that verse 20 tells us that every single one of them are expressed by name. In other words, they didn't just number them off. There's a certain level of humanity, a certain level of importance that is placed upon this group of people. I want to start by looking at the intention of the servant the intention of the servant. First of all, a servant-hearted person will always make sure that they are following God's will. I want you to notice in verse 20, it says also of the Nethinims whom David and the princes had appointed, had appointed. These were selected individuals who were doing their best within the boundaries of what they believed to be God's will to serve the Levites. These were the servants to the servants of God. They were about as low on the totem pole as humanly possible. But they recognized that they had been appointed for a very special reason. Not only was their intention to follow God's will, but their intention was to do God's work. Notice in verse number 20 again, it says, And David and the princes had appointed for the service of the Levites, for the service of the Levites, they literally were there to wash the garments after a long day of slaughtering sacrifices. They were there, no doubt, to wash the feet and the hands of these many countless priests that were performing the, the work of God in the house of God on a daily basis. They were there to make sure that all the different pieces and instruments and all the different walls and fittings and fixtures throughout the house of God were kept spotlessly clean. They were the ones behind the scenes actually doing the hard stuff. The stuff that nobody else wanted to do. They would step in and they would make sure that God's work was accomplished. And I don't mean the work that everybody got a chance to see. That's what the Levites did. The Levites got to do the work that everybody else was watching. This group of people came in behind the Levites when everybody else had gone home. When everybody else had left. When everybody else had gone silent, then they came in and they did the stuff behind the scenes to make it all work the way it was supposed to work. They would line up the sacrifices. They would make sure that somebody was that the knives were sharpened. They would make sure that the water had been changed out in the basin. They would make sure that the blood had been cleaned from the altar. They would all of these things were things the Nethanims did. I find it interesting that Other than Ezra and Nehemiah, nethanyms are never mentioned hardly in your entire Bible. They are a nameless, silent, invisible group of people, but not in the eyes of God. That's why in verse number 20 it says that all of them were expressed by name. Not only was their intention to follow God's will, And to do God's work. But thirdly, their intention was to submit to God's word. They knew who they were there to serve. It was the Levites, the servants of God. They were there to make their job easier. They were there to pick up the slack. They were there when maybe something got forgotten. They were the ones who were the gophers. They would run and grab it. And while nobody else knew who they were, while nobody else cared to know who they were, They were absolutely essential to what God was trying to do in his house. Servant-hearted. So we see the intention of the servant. Number two, we see the importance of the servant. The importance of the, the servant. And we see it here because of that last expression in verse number 20. All of them were expressed by name. All of them were expressed by name. This is very different from how most slaves were treated in this era. Most slaves in this time in history were nothing more than a body to perform a work and nobody cared to ever know who they were. God viewed these people very differently. First of all, based on the fact that every single one of their names was known and expressed, it tells me that every single one of them were essential. Essential to serve As a doer within the house of God, essential to serve as an example to the people of God. I have no doubt that some of the young people within Israel would watch the Nethanims with a great deal of reverence, thinking, can you imagine? You know, it's hard enough to imagine being a Levite, it's hard enough. To put yourself in their shoes. They don't get a, a position like the rest of Israel does. They don't get a great big deal of land. They have to live right in the heart of Israel. They don't get to live out on the countryside. They don't get to expand their location and their inheritance. They get this much, and their focus is constantly on the service of the house of God. Slaughtering the animals, offering the sacrifices, doing the things that God has commanded them to do. It's hard enough to put ourselves in that position, but can you imagine being a Nethanim? A servant to the servant. What an example, though. What an example that must have been for the children of Israel to watch the Nethanims quietly and humbly do the work of the Lord even when they thought no one else was watching. They were essential to serve as a doer of the work of the Lord. They were essential to serve as an example for the children of God. They were to serve also as a follower. What is a leader without followers? Nothing. A leader without followers is taking a walk. I can't remember who said that, but it was good. I remember that one time. I read that and I put it into a sermon. A leader without followers is doing nothing but taking a walk. You see, followers are essential. And they're not at the bottom of the totem pole. They are the essence and goal of all ministry. They were to serve as followers. And then fourthly, they were to serve as an encouragement. They were to serve as encouragement. God placed them in the care of the Levites... And one, one, I believe one of their greatest jobs was to let the Levites know that God cares about you. That's why I'm here. God sees your work. He sees your effort. And that's why I'm here. I don't need anybody to see me. But I'm here to make sure that you're encouraged. That you're uplifted. They're always essential. But number two, they're never just a number. They are never just a number. Without the servant-hearted, churches would be empty. Preaching would be empty. Ministry would be empty without the servant-hearted. If there weren't those that were willing to roll up their sleeves and to jump into the work, and regardless of praise or glory or notoriety, do what they believe God wanted them to do, then what we do is in vain. All of it. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter number four. We're not going to be back at Ezra. You can just turn away from there. Ephesians chapter number four. The servant hearted. A critical and beautiful group of people. I believe if you want to know the people that I think God takes most interest in, it's this group. Because they most exemplify his son, Jesus. And I'll show that to you here in a moment. Ephesians chapter number four, and we will jump in at verse number number 15. Ephesians chapter four, verse 15. The Bible says there, "...but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ." from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. You know what Jesus, what Paul's saying here to the church at Ephesus? He's saying every single part of the body of Christ is critically important. There isn't one part of that body that isn't essential to life. The same thing is true here. Every single one is important, never just a number, and always essential. The last thing we'll look at this morning will be done, not only the intention of the servant, the importance of the servant, but thirdly, the illustration of the servant. Turn with me to Philippians chapter number 2. Philippians chapter number 2, we'll see the ultimate illustration, the personification of what it means to be a servant. Philippians chapter number 2. And look at verse number four. What is it that motivates a servant to do what they do? Why is it that I should be expected to be a servant? It's not about expectation. In fact, expectation really doesn't have anything to do with it. What motivates a servant to be a servant... It all boils down to one word, and it's the word love. A love for your heavenly Father and a love for your fellow man. It's what drove Jesus to do what he did here in Philippians chapter number two, beginning at verse number four. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. What a great way of illustrating and exemplifying servitude. Verse number five, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He was the very Christ, the Son of the living God, robed in flesh. He had, he had every right to, to take in every ounce of glory that he could possibly ever take in in his time on earth, but he didn't do that. Look at verse 7. But made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross born in obscurity lived in obscurity died in obscurity a servant he emptied himself he enslaved himself to us he humbled himself for us he submitted himself To the Father, ultimately for our salvation, what was it that motivated him? His love for his Father and his love for mankind. The same thing that ought to motivate us today to take upon ourselves the form of a servant. A love for our Heavenly Father and a love for our fellow man. Now what did God do in response to Jesus taking upon Himself the form of a servant? Look at verse 9. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted Him and given Him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know why being a servant in our hearts is so critical today? Because... Everything in our world is trying to get us to be exactly the opposite of a servant. What is it that everyone wants in our day? They want popularity. They want notoriety. They want everybody to look at them and see them and, and raise them up. They want to go viral. They want to, they want to become famous. That's what people want in our day. And what we're being told here is that our hearts should be exactly the opposite so filled with love that we just want to serve others. That's who Jesus was, and that's what He's called us to be. Ultimately, in time, God wants us to reach an elite status where we can, where He can use us in any one of these capacities, as a brave-hearted Christian, as a wise-hearted Christian, or as a servant-hearted Christian, based on the need of the hour. This should be our ultimate goal, to be all three, not just one. If you're a child of God, if I'm a child of God, each one of us is an essential part of this great team that God's assembled here at Trinity Baptist Church. Don't ever let Satan lie to you and convince you that you're not important here. You're absolutely essential. You are critical piece. Without you, the body won't work the way it's supposed to work. I believe God has brought us all together for such a time as this. But we each have to do our part as a brave-hearted person, as a wise-hearted person, as a servant-hearted person, fulfilling God's plan in this time.